This is the Illinois. This is my time. This is our time. Grab that bull by the horns and own it, man. Today's your day. Let's go to work. Welcome to the Illinois podcast. The Illinois. Cutting through the noise of Illinois politics. Here's your host, Patrick Fingston. Well, hey there. Live from my basement. It's uh, the Illinois live stream podcast. I'm Patrick Fingston. Uh, I write the Illinois.com political newsletter uh, that uh, we write every day uh, on Illinois news and political government happenings. Uh, if you don't subscribe, go to the Illinois.com now and you can get a free subscription and uh, get our uh, free content that we put out every day uh, as uh, as uh, as we uh, face uh, another weird spring of Illinois politics. The assault weapons ban, as we mentioned last week, was uh, signed into law by the governor uh, essentially immediately after the legislature passed it. And the uh, gun rights groups have wasted no time in uh, filing a federal lawsuit. Uh, there was one filed late last night in uh, the Southern District of Illinois, which is the uh, federal court in Benton. As I pull up my story here, uh, the um, case was filed by the Illinois State Rifle Association, uh, the Firearms Policy Coalition, Second Amendment Foundation, a Randolph County Gun Shop, a McHenry County Gun Shop, and an Air Force veteran who lives in St. Clair County. Uh, Attorney General Kwame Roll, State Police Director Brendan Kelly, and six local officials are defendants in the case. Uh, State Police uh, Director Brendan Kelly uh, spokesman said they do not comment on pending legislate or uh, litigation. A uh, 28-page suit, unsurprisingly, basically, uh, claims the assault we- weapons ban violates the Second Amendment. Uh, it says, quote, the state's enactment and defendant's enforcement of the prohibition on common semi-automatic firearms uh, inaccurately labeled as assault weapons and on certain magazines are arbitrarily deemed to be of large capacity denies individuals who reside in the state, including the individual plaintiffs, their customers, and other members of their groups, their fundamental individual right to keep and bear common arms, the suit claims, by prohibiting plaintiffs from possessing and carrying popular semi-automatic firearms and common ammunition magazines, Illinois has prevented them from keeping and bearing arms within the meaning of the amendment's text. As a result, to justify its regulation, the government must demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with the nation's tradition of firearm regulation. Uh, essentially, this is going to uh, wind up in the Supreme Court because this is this is clearly where this is headed. This is where these these groups want it to go. Um, they're, they're basing their arguments on a uh, a recent case related to the uh, New York concealed carry law uh, called Bruin, B-R-U-E-N. You can look that up. Uh, the that uh, essentially basically says that the Second Amendment means it covers everything, uh, and you know that's that's going to be a um, that's going to be a point of discussion, a point of contention. Obviously, uh, we'll see how the Supreme Court winds up thinking here. There, there is a case that was filed in in state court uh, in in. Um, in Effingham County by by Tom DeVore, who's the the guy who who pushed all the the COVID uh, mask mandate suits and stuff like that that all got 
either yanked by the appellate court level or 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 rejected at that point the the reality is even if they get a stay in a from a from a friendly judge in Evingham County the state appellate court is going to say that we don't have standing they're going to kick it out and it's going to wind up in the state uh or in the federal court anyway so so don't focus your attention on maybe what the media has to say today about this Effingham County case, because it's not really pertinent. The real cases are going to be fought out in, in federal court. And, and this will likely wind up with, with this, this, uh, this case being heard uh, in front of the Supreme Court. So we'll keep an eye on that. Uh, coming up, we'll uh, we'll chat with uh, former Congressman Rodney Davis. He uh, served the 13th district from, 2013 to uh, just uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, he uh, lost a primary uh, in June after he was gerrymandered out of his district uh, and has some thoughts on Kevin McCarthy, the new speaker who he is uh, close friends with, and uh, and also some thoughts on how Illinois Republicans can, uh, can be relevant again in this state where they are increasingly irrelevant. Uh, and, and I also sat down yesterday with State Comptroller Susana Mendoza. Uh, we sat down for about an hour at a, a restaurant on the northwest side of Chicago, and uh, instead of a, a full-on uh, taped interview, since we were in kind of a, a crowded place and, and a little loud, I've got some clips for you, uh, more than uh, a traditional kind of sit-down uh, visit. But um, she's under the radar, maybe, become one of the more popular uh, politicians in the state. and. You know, she she was the highest vote getter statewide in November uh, by outpacing the governor by some seventy eight thousand votes, I think it was. So she she has, uh, you know, she has this this straight talk attitude. She has this um, this appeal to to the center and to even center right uh, that that has made her uh, an appealing statewide elected official. Uh, and and I think has earned her some goodwill because things have, let's face it, things have started to turn around. Um, you know, when she took office, the we were in the the midst of the Rauner debacle, and and things were at, you know, the bill backlog was something like sixteen billion dollars at that point, and you know she along with along with some help, you know, I, I don't think she's anyone to to say that you know the the bond deal that they passed shortly after she took office and the tax increase that was enacted in 2017 and, you know, some, some targeted things that she did in paying Medicaid first, which has higher reimbursement rates from the federal government. You know, these things have helped chip away at that backlog. And, you know, the, the state's bill payment cycle is inside 30 days at this point, which is exactly where you want it to be. It's interesting, though, because those those numbers are pretty clear and you can look at the charts that show that that this was on its way in the right direction, even before the pandemic hit. And and there continue to be a lot of 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 people on the right. Um, and again, I say this is a guy who's on the center right that 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 want to make it sound like this has only gotten better. The budget, the. Um, the, the bill backlog because of that $8 billion in federal COVID dollars. Um, I, I asked her about that. And essentially it's just, it, it's, 
it, it's not factual. And I, I, I was interested in how she uh, combats what, what they have to say. Not true. And I mean, it's hard to try to argue a lie, right? To disprove something that is impossible to, to prove when they say, um, you know, the it's dark outside when clearly it's sunny, right? Like I, I will tell you, clearly it's not sunny and the facts are it's light. I'm actually getting a sunburn, but they'll still say it's dark outside. And so how do I rationally say that they're not accurate? So they're either completely mistaken. There's something wrong in their brain that doesn't connect or they're purposely misleading people, right? Because clearly these are indisputable facts. Now, when it comes to our finances and where we're at today, those are indisputable facts too. I mean, it's technically impossible, literally impossible for me to have paid down our bill backlog to under $3 billion, to get our accounts payable under control, actually eliminate the backlog and have an accounts payable um, that was done before getting a penny of federal ARPA in the door. So, I mean, explain to me how I can how that was possible because that's not my opinion i mean the credit markets can attest to the fact that our accounts payable had was already completely manageable well under three billion on a calendar that preceded the federal stimulus making its way to illinois so those are just the facts now i i do feel that a lot of these folks who are pushing this false narrative they know that those are the facts but they still keep pushing that false narrative which at some point you start to say, I can't respect that because now if you thought that maybe I paid down the bill backlog with those federal funds, I could see where you might think that, the timing of it, right? It's taken me six years to get our bill backlog under control and now have a working accounts payable. And it's not a sexy story, right? I really have to do monumental things as controller to get covered in the newspapers or on TV. So you can see where people don't hear this, the financial success every single day. So they just assume things are terrible. But it took me six years to get us there. Well, really five years, right, to get us there. And then all of a sudden we have all this news coverage about this massive influx of money coming into all states, not just Illinois. So you could see where constituents might be confused and think, well, of course, Illinois is doing better financially because they got all this money. But once I explain to you the facts that, look, we were already there a year ago before a penny of that money came into the state of Illinois, at that point you should say, oh, okay, I wasn't aware of that. And now that you can prove to me that these bills had already been paid down before you got the money, I'm gonna stop spreading misinformation, right? The facts of the matter are, they know this, they keep spreading misinformation, there's nothing I can do about that. I just hope that the voters trust that I've been more than transparent. I mean, really, I've ushered in historic transparency to this office. I want people to know what we're doing with their money. So that's uh, that's Susanna Mendoza on the uh, the paying down the, the bill backlog. I also asked her about the, the rainy day fund, which got a billion dollars uh, earlier in the year in the state budget and, and is giving another 800 million and change. Uh, in the the bill, the BIMP bill that was passed uh, in in the lame duck session, and and you know I, I think we we need to go back and realize that essentially since the Blagojevich administration, the state has had no rainy day fund, um, you know, and that means through the housing market collapse, that means through the budget impasse, that means when we got into COVID, there 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 was no 
there was no cushion to fall on. So I asked her how important uh, it was for her to uh, to get to have a rainy day fund that's being established. I don't want to tell you I think it's everything, but it is such a big part of the equation, right? It is. I can't understate the importance of this. And I know that when the public hears you have over a billion dollars and everyone has an interest that they care about, right? They think, well, maybe that's too much money. A billion dollars is a lot of money. I don't like paying taxes, so you should cut my taxes so that I, we, we don't need a billion dollars. Give it to us in tax breaks or something. But the reality of it is that it's important for me to keep talking about this and educating the public because a billion dollars is not even a week's worth of reserves for the state of Illinois. If you care about your kids' education, if you care about having police and fire, if you care about roads and bridges, if you care about whatever you care about, healthcare, right? Those things cost money. That's why we pay taxes. And so um, if there were another devastating collapse of our economy through no fault of our own, and I'll give you two. One of them was 9-11. Right when 9-11 happened, that wasn't Illinois' fault, but it certainly blew a massive hole in our budget as it did in every other state in our nation. And we had to recover from that. Another one would be the economic collapse of 2008, right? That wasn't Mrs. Smith's fault over in Portage Park. It was something that happened across the country and we had to brace for it. COVID is the third. That was no fault of our own, right? Now. The sad part of this story is that the one that came before COVID was 100% a man-made calamity, and that was the budget impasse. Totally unnecessary. During the best economy of our lifetimes, we inflicted the most damage in the state's history to our state, right? Eight consecutive credit downgrades in two years before I became controller under Governor Rauner. Over a billion dollars, 1.104 billion in late payment interest penalties because we were deadbeats. Um, and the average bill payment cycle was, on average, 210 business days. That's how long we would tell a vendor doing business with our state who had done their job that they had to wait to get paid, right? So many businesses went out of business. Justifiably so, right? Understandably so. And so you had those eight credit downgrades that are so hard to recover from because it's really hard to get an upgrade, but it's super easy to get a downgrade. But then you're going to spend the next 10 years trying to, like, claw your way back up. And so um, that was a man-made disaster, and it ended up impacting our budgets worse than 9-11 did, worse than um, COVID, because at least COVID, the government was there to help us get through that, right? Um, and worse than the economic collapse of 2008. That's what those two years of the best economy did for us. So obviously, you know, M Mendoza's point is that we shouldn't have been in this situation, but 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 obviously the you know the the budget impasse put put the state behind you know behind the eight ball and and as uh you know i think i think you can you can look at this objectively and say that whether you're republican or democrat whether you you think that that the Pritzker administration is spending too much money or or not or whether you think that the arpa the funds the federal funds have helped with balancing the budget which of course they have uh, higher higher than expected revenues because people got an influx of cash from the federal government. These things have all contributed, but but it's a good thing, right? It's a good thing that we are seeing some improvement in state finances. Uh, 
But then then you have incidents like in this uh, in the same bill that the the uh, rainy day fund uh, edition got uh, got passed included these these last second under the radar pay increases for for every member of the legislature uh, for constitutional officers like Mendoza uh, and for uh, a, a certain number of of the governor's cabinet basically. Uh, and it's it's one thing to to put a pay increase in the budget and then to go face taxpayers about it. Uh, and actually, the legislature did do that. It did give itself a pay increase in the budget that passed in 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 April. But um, but but then, you know, two days before the governor's new, you know, these constitutional officers terms were to take effect, they 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 slide in another pay increase. And that's not to say that that you don't want these these people to have competitive salaries because you want to incentivize good people to do it, but uh, but it looks bad. Uh, so I, so I wondered what Mendoza thought about the the perception of of the pay increase and how it uh, how it looked as it came just under the radar, just under the wire before she took her oath for a second term. To say that if people think that I don't deserve the raise, then they shouldn't vote for me, right? But I can assure you that I'm very thankful and appreciative and respectful of whatever my salary is that the taxpayers um, choose to give me, right, at the end of the day, and that I'm going to work very, very hard every day of my life to earn it and to far exceed the investment that they make in me. I want to be the best return on their investment ever. And legislators are going to have to, you know, work hard to earn that. And if they don't, then they should be voted out, right? Any one of us. If we don't work hard to earn our keep, then we don't deserve to be there. So, um, but I, I will say this. I understand where taxpayers are coming from and that no one likes to see elected officials get pay raises. But I will say that I'm glad that if they were going to do it, they did it in an honest way where they had to vote for it. And it wasn't snuck in or through some court order that because they... They pretended to be honorable and then on the other side, you know, stick it to the taxpayers. So at least now, look, voters don't like it. They can hold their their legislator who voted that way accountable. She's referring there to uh, former state senators Mike Nolan and James Claiborne, who uh, who essentially sued the state for back pay uh, even after they uh, rejected cost of living adjustments while they served in the legislature. And that's a case that went all the way to the state Supreme Court uh, last year. I think it was I think it was last year sometime in 22, uh, that it was, um, you know, essentially rejected by the Supreme Court that, that they don't get back pay, even though they were uh, they were trying to get that. But that was uh, those were Mendoza's comments on the the pay raises for for lawmakers. And uh, and I had a, a, I wondered her thoughts on the governor's uh, inaugural address where he laid out some some potentially very expensive ideas uh like like free college tuition uh for you know we don't know what threshold he said working class you know he said below poverty line before we don't we don't know exactly where he's going with that yet but but same with with free child care and and free preschool and and you know as as the state's slowly trying to build its financial footing back up i asked mendoza if she's concerned about potentially high-priced social programs 
uh, coming through the legislature. These are concepts that a lot of people can get behind, even members of both parties, frankly, right? But it all, it's like they say, the devil's in the details, right? You're going to say, do people that make, whose parents make a ton of money, uh, or who are wealthy already, should they qualify? I think everyone would universally agree, no, right? But who is that universe of kids going to be? I'll give you an example, um, MAP grants, right? When MAP grants first passed, they covered pretty much the entire tuition, right? Um, so most poor kids that qualified for MAP grant funding, this actually allowed them to go to college. And then every year it kind of gets, tuition gets more expensive, the MAP grants don't get much bigger, if anything, they say the same or get reduced, right? So you see that the MAP grants don't really cover tuition. So I don't know what the plan is yet for how they're going to decide who qualifies for these programs, but the price tag might not actually be as huge as you might envision it. It could be like a combination of, let's say, MAP grant, like whoever qualifies for MAP grants today would qualify for the free. When they're already getting subsidized a significant amount, so the additional is what you'd be looking at the cost, right? Now, if they open it up beyond that, if they say like, Anyone who qualifies for EITC, well, that's a lot of people, right? So it just kind of depends on the universe. What's your universe? And then you do the math. But I would say that investing in kids' education is a good investment with a good return on investment for our state. Um, what we don't want to see is Illinois continue to hemorrhage our talented youth to other states, right, that offer better incentives. And so um, why do I think this is important? It's just from an, besides the moral component, which clearly is, right, we should be investing in our youth. We always talk about how the kids are the future, but then it's like, well, let's not help them out, right? Um, what I would say is this, if you don't care about the moral component, think of the economics of it. We have, as a state, and every state is the same way, we have invested in these kids in the public education system from the, you know, the minute they're eligible for it, which hopefully will become younger and younger, right? Because there's tons of evidence to suggest that investing in early childhood education has an incredible return on investment. But let's just say even at kindergarten, right? So kindergarten through high school, we've put billions of dollars into educating these kids, only then to lose them to other states once they're actually smart and uh, go off to college, right? And so other schools will recruit them because they give them better scholarships or whatever. And then once those kids leave Illinois, they're inclined to probably not come back, right? A lot of kids set up roots in other states. If they end up getting married, having kids, who follows? Mom and dad a lot. You see this other migration that we never really talk about, right? And so how can we as a state, how do we think about this as a bigger picture and say, what can we do to keep this huge investment, that this outlay of billions of dollars that we've done over the lifetime of this child multiplied by X amount of kids, right? How do we keep that investment working for Illinois and paying off? Because right now we're making the investment. But if we lose those kids to other states, we get zero return on investment. We're actually a negative return on that investment because those kids aren't going to be contributing taxes in our state. They're going to be contributing elsewhere. So that's uh, an argument for, you know, the idea of, of more investment in, in things like childcare and preschool and, and obviously trying to get kids under the poverty line potentially uh, to, to go to college uh, in, in Illinois. And, and just final, final note for final touch on, on Mendoza was uh, just kind of with the weird economy that we're, we're living through right now, where inflation was, was really high in the first half of last year. It's still high, but it's not as bad as it was. You know, the fed has, has continued raising interest rates, basically daring the economy to uh, go into a recession 
but unemployment is low and, uh, you know, the, the price of goods is high and it's just, it's, it's this weird economic situation and it almost feels sometimes like, and again, I'm not, I'm not an economist for, for, for many reasons, one being I'm not that smart, but two, uh, but, but does it, but I wondered from her perspective as she's planning and trying to figure out how to, how to pay the state's bills, how she looks at a weird economic outlook like we're in right now and, and, and plans for it. That short of another horrific, you know, crisis that's no fault of our own, I only look at that as a positive thing because, again, remember, I've only managed us through crisis, right? And we still have come out on top. So I really much look forward to better days where it's not like the house is burning today, right? And so I feel if we can be in this position right now, like a little blip in the economy or a little recession, it's not something that scares me, put it that way. And I always think very conservatively. So when you think little recession, I'm thinking catastrophic recession, right? Like that's how we prepare. We're not preparing for the best case scenario. We're preparing for the worst case scenario, but hopeful for better things. So when I hear even amidst high inflation, even with talk of potential recessions, um, there are things that give me positivity, like the fact that it's different than our past recession where nobody had jobs, right? This is a recession potentially, if it happens, where it's hard to find an employee, right? Like. Go ask Jimmy who owns this place. And There's he'll tell a sign you, on the door. Yeah, he's paying 30 bucks an hour for dishwashers or cooks, and he still can't attract them, right? I mean, who would have thought that three, four years ago? So the issue isn't that people can't find a job. It's people are being very picky as to where they want to work because it's really a worker's market right now. That's different than in a normal recession, right? It's not that people don't want to buy a car because they don't have the money. They can't get the car because of the supply chain, right? So... There's other things that have driven the inflation going up. So there are other positive markers in the economy that I think bode well long term and even short term that make me less nervous than if, you know, people were losing their jobs, didn't have income coming in, if we saw that reflected in our state revenues. And on top of that, we heard of like a recession around the corner, right? So that's uh, State Comptroller Susana Mendoza, uh, who is... Uh... Obviously, you know, the, the numbers showed that she did quite well in November and, and is, uh, I, th- I think it's safe to say, popular politician in the state. Uh, so the question is, what's next for her? Uh, you know, you don't find a lot of people that aspire to be state comptroller. Um, you know, both the, the two before her, Dan Hines and, and Judy Bartopinka, uh both ran for governor. Uh, so, so essentially, you know, what, what does Mendoza want to do? She ran for mayor of Chicago four years ago, of course, did not, uh, did not make it past kind of the knockout stage. Uh, and, but, you know, I think you're going to hear her name come up a lot. Uh, you know, whether depending on what JB Pritzker does in four years, if he runs for president, if he, if he waits until 2028 and thinks about running for president, then depending on what Dick Durbin does, if he, uh, if he doesn't seek another term in the U S Senate, so, so there's a lot of uh, a lot of reasons to keep Susana Mendoza uh, on 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 your mind as you think about politics in the state uh, over the next five or ten years. Uh, speaking of D.C., since we mentioned Durbin, uh, I, I sat down with uh, my my former boss, Congressman Rodney Davis, uh, earlier this week. Uh, he uh, 
I, I worked his campaign in 2012 and, and uh, you know, he, he lost a primary in June to uh, in a, in a new gerrymandered district. Uh, but he's very close to Kevin McCarthy, the new speaker of the house. Uh, so, so I, I wanted to talk to him about kind of what that looked like. And then some perspective from him on how Republicans can kind of right their ship from uh, not only mediocrity, but chaos that, that we've seen so far in the state for Republicans politically. So, so here's our conversation with Davis. We're pleased now to be joined by former Congressman Rodney Davis, now former Congressman Rodney Davis, who uh, just recently gave up his, uh, his seat in, in the old 13th district uh, after losing a primary in the new 15th district after being gerrymandered out of out of his district uh, and some career news for Rodney as well, uh, which we'll get to. Uh, Congressman, I obviously folks know that I worked on your first campaign in 2012. So uh, if there's any bias, they, they know that up front, but uh, it's good to talk to you. How, how do you feel post Congress now? I hear there are some people who, who, when they leave, they just, they long to be back. And there are those that are just like, Hey, whatever it's, it's what the voters want. Uh, look, I, I haven't looked back. Uh, you know, when I lost the primary unexpectedly, um, you know, none of us thought that it would happen. I had it. I fully showed that we would win until it didn't. Until we didn't. Um, I did what everybody who loses an election should do. I picked up the phone, called my opponent, conceded. Um, then I walked outside and talked to my friends and family who were there and said, "What's next?" And I really haven't looked back. Uh, I enjoyed my 10 years in Congress. I really enjoyed being a legislator. And as a matter of fact, I think we got a lot of things done. You were around when I made my promises of what I would do if, if elected to Congress. And I fulfilled many of those promises, Patrick. And I, I'm excited to be able to look back on my career and look at those successes. But at the same time, I'm excited to start a new career as, we, as I move into my 53rd year on earth. So obviously you're you're a guy who who has been close to Kevin McCarthy and Steve Scalise and and kind of the the current house leadership now. What was your reaction as you watched the speaker vote go on and on and on and on for days uh last week? Oh, it was absolute embarrassment for uh, my friends who were voting for Kevin McCarthy every single ballot. Uh, and that was over 200 of them. Uh, it was embarrassing to be held hostage by a small group of people who were asking for demands that many of those demands were already in the rules package. Many of those demands were, were just seemingly moving uh, every day and, and multiple times a day. You know, I was doing TV coverage on CNN while it was happening. So I was texting a lot of my friends that were on the floor and then I was in DC. So I would end up back at the Capitol talking to many of my colleagues. And there's one thing that I witnessed that was actually, um, you know, I, I don't think my, the, the folks who were on the panel with me believe me when I said, what this is doing is it's empowering the 200 plus Republicans in Congress to stand up to those, those who just didn't want to vote for Kevin, regardless of why they said they didn't want to vote for Kevin. It was all personal. And those 200 are now stronger, which in the end, Kevin McCarthy would not have put himself through 15 rounds if he didn't have the overwhelming support of the people who were in that Republican conference. 
they are now stronger. And Kevin McCarthy, I would argue, is a stronger speaker for having gone through what he did. You know, I've had my criticisms of Kevin McCarthy over the years, especially the the going and hugging Trump after January 6th. But uh, he there there are some criticisms, obviously, of, of you know whether he's quote unquote spineless or or waves in the wind. Do you have faith that he can be a decent speaker? I think Kevin McCarthy is going to be a great speaker. I'm very close to Kevin. He's one of my closest friends in Congress. He believed in me to run a committee that is a leadership appointed committee, the Committee on House Administration. I worked hand in hand with him and his team over my time in Congress. So I I think Kevin McCarthy is going to be a great speaker. You know, there's a lot of people that are in Congress. A lot of those 200 that voted for Kevin feel the same way I do. You know, they're in districts like the one I ran in. They're solid Republican districts where former President Trump can play a role in the primary process. Look, I don't have a lot of love lost for the guy, but in the end, in the end, Donald Trump was actually made stronger because it was him who finally got angry enough with those five who were just doing what they could to stop Congress from being organized to stop Kevin McCarthy from doing what most Republicans in Congress and in our country wanted to happen, to have him as speaker. And ironically, Donald Trump is stronger because of his involvement in the speaker's race last week. Why Why does he have, what Donald Trump, meaning, why does he continue to have such a hold on the Republican Party? I don't see that he's got a hold on the Republican Party. It's just that he can play a role. I mean, a lot of my colleagues are going to look at my loss and say, wow, man, if Trump's against me, then they can beat Davis in a district. If they don't know the the lines of a new district, um, then they're going to take a step back and say, what can I do to make sure that doesn't happen electorally? But in the end, I mean, you saw footage of Marjorie Taylor Greene on the phone with Donald Trump and Donald Trump talking to these individuals and getting them to vote president. Donald Trump, if, you know, coming out of that speaker's race, has more ability to, in my opinion, get back into some good graces with many who were frustrated by him because he ended the embarrassment. He ended the madness. And it took him getting angry enough at those five to get them to finally acquiesce to do the right thing and, you know, we'll see what the long-term consequences are. If President Trump feels like, hey, you know, I, I got them to do what I wanted wanted them to do, and I'm still angry they put me into that position, or if he's going to go back and somewhat, you know, just play Spengali and play both sides of, of the party and, and put himself into irrelevance. You know, it wasn't that long ago, though. I mean, you know, when we when I worked with you, it was 2012, 2020 was the last race I worked with when we ran against Mary Miller in a primary. And, you know, the, the entire electorate, the entire Republican electorate seemingly changed in, in those 10, eight years, you know, that, that it, it was in 2012, your Republican voters wanted someone who was good on, on guns and abortion and taxes and those sort of things. And, and by 2020, it was, all we want is fealty to Trump. And and it just seems like the party has lost its way. 
in, in the sense that it's all about a person instead of a set of ideals that it used to be. Do you disagree with that? Well, there are some that are that consider themselves Republicans that became Republicans because of Donald Trump. Uh, you were with me in 2012, and you heard you heard you know, UMW folks tell me that hey, they could never vote for me because I was a Republican. You know, over the course of a decade, many of those same individuals would then chastise me when they thought I wasn't Republican enough. So the blue collar the blue collar Republican re revolution has solidified over those 10 years. And Donald J. Trump as president, as, as a presidential candidate in 2016, nuclearized that process. So he spoke to them. They felt the Democrat Party at the national level had left them, even though many of their same labor unions were still pushing that narrative that the Democrats in Washington cared about them. Well, they left the Democratic Party. They're not going back. So the Republican Party, as we know it, is a much different makeup. And at the same time that Donald Trump was bringing in those blue-collar workers, he was pushing away the, suburb, the suburban Republican support that had been Republican for decades. And there's no better place to show that movement than DuPage County. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, where you go from place that, that uh, Bruce Rauner won by, you know, 10% in 2014 to Darren Bailey losing it by 52,000 votes in 2020. I mean, it's, it's very clear that, that that Trumpism is hurting Republicans in, in the suburbs. So, so as someone who's, who's run campaigns, who's run the state party, who's been in Congress, who's been up front at this, how do Republicans in Illinois get it back on track? Well, it's going to take a lot of work. Uh, number one, we got to elect candidates in the primary that can win. Uh, Darren Bailey was a terrible candidate for governor. And if, if voters don't think that has an impact on the rest of the ticket, then they're not, they're, they're not living in reality. Uh, at, at some point, you have to have candidates that can win races. And Republicans can still win in the suburban Chicago areas with the right candidates. We, we've seen that time and time again. Uh, but what has to happen is we have to realize downstate is going to vote for any Republican candidate. Downstate has changed dramatically. The rural parts of my old district that continued to put me in Congress, even though that district was drawn to elect a Democrat with all of the public universities in the urban areas that were included. Downstate Illinois will support a Republican, but we, have, we as Republicans have to identify candidates that can get the support in areas where most of our population is, and that's in the northeast corner of our state. And, and, and it's doable. You look at a race like the Cast and Peacock race, and I was watching the numbers doing election night coverage in St. Louis at KMOV, and I saw Keith Peacock, he, he came out of the Cook County portion of that district, basically tied. Mm -hmm. All he had left was DuPage. And I thought, wow, this is going to be a win. He lost two pages by 20,000 votes. That's a problem when you have the top of the ticket that takes down a good candidate like Peacock that went and won the areas that he wasn't supposed to win in those blue-collar areas, but lost what was what used to be the most Republican county in the nation. When, and I was on WGN that night when I when I saw Peacock's numbers in the city. I leaned over to the anchor and said, Peacock's going to win that race. And, and it was it was clear that DuPage was just 
the undoing. Uh, much much of your district is now represented by your old district is now represented by a Democrat, Nikki Budzinski, uh, who ran a, a very smart, very safe race in in her campaign. Um, she's trying to to make herself appear as a moderate as as she's taken her early votes here. What's what's your advice to her as? Uh, and and I, I know you guys talked at one point, but um, what's what's your advice to her moving forward in, in trying to uh, govern this this difficult time politically in and in a, a really you know 50-50 district? Well, as Nikki knows, and as everybody on, that listens to your podcast knows, that um, you know, I, I endorsed and supported Regan Deering for that seat. Thought Regan would do a phenomenal job. Uh, Nikki won, and that's a district that is, is very, very liberal district. The way that it snakes through the Champaign-Urbana area and into the into areas of Decatur and Springfield, and then down into some very liberal liberal areas in the Metro East. Very Metro East district. Um, Nikki, who I've gotten to know through the orientation process, remember. Uh, my job as the lead Republican on House administration is to actually run orientation. So I talked to Nikki a lot. I sat by her on the floor when Speaker Pelosi announced that she wasn't going to, to stand for Speaker again. Um, I've given Nikki advice that I would give anyone. And frankly, I, I've been impressed that she's asking for a lot of advice. Uh, Nikki is going to, she's going to try and, uh, she's going to try and, you know, figure out how to, how to cast that those votes between the moderates in Macoupin County and also areas of Macon County versus the far, far left in Champaign-Urbana and the Metro East. And those are going to be the difficulties she's going to have. Same difficulties I have. You know, I, I, I would vote in, I, I would vote my district to be able to, to fulfill the promises I made as a candidate. And sometimes that didn't, appease the far right. And that got me primary challenges when I ran for re-election in 2014 and 2016. And then when we were in the minority, oh, I, I was conservative enough for those same individuals in, uh, in 2018 and 2020. Um, Nikki's going to have that same problem. But I would argue, looking at the first few votes that have gone through Congress and determining whether or not those are moderate versus liberal votes, Almost every Democrat voted for those, voted to create the Select Committee on China and voted to, uh, to make sure we didn't sell strategic petroleum reserve oil to, to China. Those are easy votes. So Nikki's going to face some tough ones, and I'm sure that I'll be talking to her uh, before that. And uh, she knows she can pick up the phone and give me a call if she wants unadulterated, unfiltered advice. Before we let you go, uh, Congressman, you you have uh, a new job uh, with uh, Cousin O'Connor, a, a lobbying firm uh, in D.C. Uh, you can't be a lobbyist, of course, with the the federal cooling off period. Um, but but do you do you think that it it gives a bad a bad tone a, a, a bad view for people who see politicians leave office and then immediately go to a lobbying firm? I mean. Obviously, you you know you've got a cooling off period. Uh, our friend Tim Butler, who who left the the state house, obviously state rules are a little bit different. He didn't have to 
uh, have a cooling off period. So he's able to register right away. Is is there a, a perception problem? I mean, about how and why politicians move into these uh, lobbying gigs so quickly? Well, I, I will tell you, as somebody who had a pretty long off ramp, uh, I looked at all opportunities and I had a lot of opportunities. Uh, in the end, uh, if you're if you're somebody who's active in public policy, and remember, Patrick, I was a congressional staffer for 16 years before I ran for office. So for the past 26 years, I've worked in the House and around the House, and I enjoy public policy. So I found out that um, I found out my interest as be, someone being able to build a second career is in uh, advocating on behalf of public policy and advocating on behalf of issues. So I was excited to move into this next career. Uh, I've also found many of my colleagues who are in the same boat as me who left Congress uh, haven't had the opportunity. So the so-called revolving door is based upon, uh, based upon uh, companies or firms, et cetera, recognizing that a former member can provide some value. Tim Butler, with his experience working on infrastructure and transportation issues as a staffer for Ray LaHood, as a staffer for me, and then also working those issues when he was in the State House, is somebody that is going to be able to excel at his job. So is it should somebody who has served the public be, a, be hamstrung more than they already are. Like, I can't officially lobby my colleagues in the House and the Senate for a year. Um, so I, am I going to be a less effective public policy advocate because of that? Who knows? But in the end, in the end, there are safeguards. There are transparency issues. There are ethics rules at the federal level that I had to follow and make sure that I didn't go beyond and those are things that are already in place that I don't think the public knows about that ensures that there's not this pay to play type of type of attitude that exists uh, in, in certain areas within politics in Illinois. Congressman Rodney Davis, uh, appreciate your uh, your time, your input. Hopefully we can have you back here and there as uh, uh, somebody that can weigh in on, on issues and what's going on and what they actually mean as, as we go on here. Well, happy to see you, Patrick. Uh, enjoy the new year, uh, a little one, and I'm excited for you. If there's any any way you uh, you want to put me back on so I can trash you and trash your show, I'm happy to do that, my friend. Do it, do it anytime, my man, anytime. Thanks, Congressman. See you, buddy. All right, that's Congressman Rodney Davis. I appreciate his time. Uh, former Congressman Rodney Davis, of course, who uh, left uh, left Congress a couple of weeks ago. Uh, after the uh, old, uh, the previous Congress expired. So a uh, little bit, a little bit on the longer side today, but I, I hope you uh, uh, found the the information and the the conversations valuable. And uh, that's what we're trying to do. You know, obviously Susanna Mendoza, Democrat, Rodney Davis, Republican, we're we're trying to to give you uh, interesting perspectives from interesting people on all sides. And and I'm, I'm trying to be fair to everybody. Uh, because that's that's the only way we improve our system because everyone's so dug in and you know it, it takes it, it's going to take all of us being able to have conversations with those that that disagree with us to help improve this jacked up political system uh, here in the state and 
and around the country uh, if anytime soon. So thanks so much for, for taking the time uh, for, for those of you watching live here on, on YouTube or Facebook or, uh, or on Twitter or those of you who download the podcast after. Uh, we really do appreciate you and uh, your support. If you don't get the newsletter, go to theillinois.com, I-L-L-I-N-O-I-Z-E, uh, and sign up in the top right corner. Get the free stuff. You can get the, the free stuff every day. Uh, if you'd like. So uh, we appreciate your 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 signing up and, and getting our newsletter and, and enjoying our content as we continue to uh, travel on the the busy, crazy, on fire roads of Illinois politics. But we'll keep it up and and do our best as we go on. So thanks, everyone. Have a great day.